Welcome to the Grace College Podcast, a ministry of Grace Bible Church located in College Station, Texas. We desire to impact students who will impact the world for Christ. Hope you enjoy the talk and hang around for more after. How we doing? It's great to come in off another win. I mean, I I just feel so good about Aggie football. And uh, another kind of fun piece as well is that um, it is Southwood's 10-year anniversary. Um, and uh, it was actually in August, so it's kind of a late celebration, but we're, we're celebrating 10 years of being around. And so that means that Southwood can now do long division. Um, I, don't, I don't know what 10-year-olds do, but it, it's absolutely amazing. And, and so anyway, so after our services, there actually is parties and stuff going on at the main campus. So I'm going to encourage all of you guys to come over with us and enjoy some stuff that's going over there on the main campus after our service this morning. But if you have a Bible, jump to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. I'm going to read a few verses for us, and then we will jump in. Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13. It says this. This is right after Jesus has been crucified and raised from the dead. Luke 24, 13 through 27 says this. Now that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, now about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. And while they were talking, discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation you are holding with each other? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that happened in these days? And he said to them, what things? Which I I love Jesus going like, yeah, what, what, what's, what's going on? What happened in Jerusalem? Um, just after he raised from the dead. Okay. Um, and they said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word and power and, and in God and all the people and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But, they, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who had said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, and they found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I love this moment in the life of Jesus because it's right after he rose from the dead. And there's all this confusion about what his life was about. What was the purpose of his life? What was the big story that God was weaving through his different? And he was raised from the dead, but there's a lot of people didn't expect that. They expected a different type of king, a different type of Messiah. And the fact that this Messiah would be crucified, died, and buried actually threw them for a loop. And the question I want to answer this morning is, is this one simple question. What is the big story? What is the big story that God is weaving through history? And I'll tell you this, we are a narrative people. We, we tell stories, and you do this with your friends all the time. If you talked about what happened last weekend, if someone asked you what happened this past weekend, you probably don't just give raw data. You probably don't give, um, I ate at 5.15 p.m., 
um, went to the restroom at 3.25 p.m. You, just, you don't give raw data. You tell them in a story. You say, this is what happened. Here's who I hung out with. This is what we did. You, you use a story to communicate the things that happened in your life. And, and the question is this. What is the big story? What is the big story of existence? And I'll tell you, every belief system, every person has a story that they're believing for meaning and value in life. And there is a direction they think that story is going. In this sermon series, we've been really answering a couple different questions. And the first question is this, was Jesus real? Can you prove him in history? And we looked at data from secular historians that proved the authenticity of Jesus. We also looked last week of, was Jesus the only way? Is he the only way to God? He claims that about himself, but we looked at the exclusivity and and what Jesus uniquely has done in history. And thirdly, today we're answering this question. What's the big story? Where is it all going? And every belief system has a story that they're telling, a story they believe this world is about. Stephen Jay Gould um, is a... Um, American paleontologist and a Harvard, former Harvard professor, and he says this, We are here because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs from terrestrial creatures. Because the earth now froze, nearly froze entirely during an ice age, because a small and tenuous species arriving in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook. We may learn, may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. This explanation, though superficially troubling, if not terrifying, is ultimately liberating and exhilarating. We can read the meaning of life passively in the facts of nature. We cannot read the life, meaning of life passively in the facts of nature. We must construct these answers for ourselves from our own wisdom and ethical sense. There's no other way. So what is the meaning of life according to science? Well, There actually is no meaning. We just create it for ourselves. Neil Postman, another author, um, has taken this idea of of the science's belief of where meaning of life is found. and, And he responds with this statement. But in the end, science does not provide the answers most of us require. The story of our origins and our end is, to say the least, unsatisfactory. To the question, how did it all begin? Science answers, probably by an accident. To the question, how will it all end? Science answers, probably by an accident. And to many, the accidental life is not worth living. And from the secular scientific ideal, they'll say, look, there's no meaning in life. There's no view in that story. But but you can kind of create that meaning on your own. Whatever you do, you do you. And that can be your meaning in life. Other people, they go a different direction. They say, well, I'm not going to look for science to, to give to give me meaning, I'm going to look for story. Josh, Josh Whedon, a producer, a film producer, um, believes in the narrative. People asked him in an interview um, what he believed about life, what he believed about faith. And he responded with this. Someone once asked me if I had anything like faith. And I said, I have faith in the narrative. I believe in a narrative that is bigger than me, that is alive. I trust will work itself out. He also made the, the TV series Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Okay, so Buffy star Sarah Michelle Gellar once asked, I'm not sure where this is going, where this storyline is going. He said, you don't have to trust me. Trust the narrative. We'll find our way back. 
He says, I, I, I know there's something bigger out there. There's some larger story that we're wrapped into. And, and, and the, the question, where is this all going? I don't know. There, there's some narrative arc. There's some trajectory where this is going to end. But, but even with that, that, that belief in something else, it doesn't give you anything to hold on to. It doesn't tell you that there's actually meaning and purpose in life. It doesn't give you an author and it doesn't give you really a purpose. But G.K. Chesterton said this brilliant statement. He says this, I've always felt in life first is a story. And if there is a story, there is a storyteller. There is something bigger to this life. There is a grand story. And what I want to do this morning is I want to give you the grand story. I want to give you the big story that God has been weaving through history, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. We're going to cover the entire Bible in the next 20 minutes. You ready for this? And to do that, I brought objects, all right? And so God, in the beginning, is setting a great story. And when Jesus is interacting with these disciples, the problem, the miss, was that they they did not get the story that God was weaving. And so the story begins simply with Genesis, of creation. And in Genesis chapter 1, God creates man, and he creates him in perfection, a perfect garden, an absolute, beautiful, perfect place. And his, his desire from at all time is, is to do this, to create a person, to build a people, to fill the world with his glory. We see this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. It says this, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created him, and he blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and and have dominion over the fish of the sea. And so what God did is in Genesis chapter 1, he created man. And he created man with dignity and value and worth. He created one Adam. And he says, all of this is yours. And see, he didn't give him a lot of constraints. He says, look, at this beautiful, vast area, he put him in the center of a garden, the center of perfection. He said, this place, this whole place is yours. From that very, very beginning, he gave him dignity and purpose. Man, rule this entire area. But the problem came quick. And there was a break in the purposes of God in Genesis 3. And you've seen it. In Genesis chapter 3, it says that, that there's, there's a woman created to be his partner, and, and, and they were both naked and not ashamed in the garden. God gave him one simple instruction. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, men, when you have someone you love, and they say, here's what you need to do. Enjoy the vast land, and here's the woman that's beautiful for you. You be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. You're going to figure it out, right? I mean... And he says, this is all yours. He saw his needs, he saw his desires, and he met them. But the problem came quick, because in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent came to the woman and said to her, hey, you know what you can do? You can be as God, knowing good and evil. The great temptation in the garden is this. You can be your own God. You can live life on your own terms. And so what happened quickly from the break is there was a drift from the purposes of God. Where they said, I I no longer want to obey the purposes of God. I'm going to live life on my own terms. And and that that trajectory spun pretty much out of control. All the way to uh, Genesis chapter 11. 
where you have the Tower of Babel. And you may be wondering, okay, what is the purpose of the Tower of Babel? What is that whole moment about? Is that how we got languages? No, that's not the purpose. The Tower of Babel was that moment where they said, we don't want to be scattered across the earth. We don't want to spread the image of God, the glory of God, across the earth. We want to live and be here and be our own people, living our own destiny, doing our own thing. It's, it's very similar to what we want to do in our own life. Construct our own meaning, do our own thing. And they drifted further from the purposes of God. Said, we don't want to spread. We're going to stay right here. And so God did something amazing in, in Genesis chapter 12. He said, if, if you're not going to be a people, if, if this person and these people will not fulfill bringing my glory to the world, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring them back. You know how am I going to bring them back? Through another person. And in Genesis 12, you get the person of Abraham. In Genesis 12, you got Abraham coming, um, really living his own life, doing his own thing. But God picked up Abraham and says this to Abraham in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Isn't that amazing? He says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and I'm not going to bless you for you. I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to the entire world. There's going to be a seed that comes from you. This is the new person, and I'm going to give you a seed, Abraham, and that seed will literally be be progeny that, that goes and blesses the whole world, and ultimately the whole world will be blessed Through you, Abraham. And it's this great, grand promise given to Abraham. You're going to be the new person to bless the whole world with my glory. But what happens? This is when people get confused in the reading the book of Genesis. Because all of a sudden, um, it gets weird as they start taking a bunch of wives, right? (laughs) You ever wonder that? Like, why do they all have all of these wives and all of a sudden? Like, yeah, it gets gets pretty weird. You see this, this weird twist and also the patriarchs also move from the purposes of God. They, they have sons that have sons that have sons. And eventually, Jacob has 12 sons. And they take one son and they, they make him a slave. And they throw him away to be literally a slave in Egypt. And you see these people further and further going from the purposes of God. But not only does, are the people pulling further and further from the purposes of God... You see Abraham making mistakes by taking another wife. You see the patriarchs living in sin... But you see, the people are now in slavery in Egypt. They are slavery, they are, they are under uh, oppression, and they can no longer feel, fulfill the purposes of God as slaves in Egypt. And so God does the next great thing. He pulls the people back together through the next person, and he sends them a rescuer, a redeemer named Moses. Right? And he does a great thing. He says, let my people go, right? He comes to them that are a slave and he says to Pharaoh, let my people go. Let me save these people. Let me bring them out. And he, he comes to, 
to Pharaoh and over, through a, a, amazing miracles, eventually the grip of Pharaoh is released and he brings the people all the way to Mount Sinai. And there's this amazing moment when they're at Mount Sinai, literally in the presence of God. Exodus goes up and gets the Ten Commandments. And in Exodus 19, he comes down and he says this amazing statement in Exodus 19. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. How I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you'll indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to Israel. And they said, is that we're going to be God's people to represent God to the entire world? And they're like, yes, we're going to do that. We're going to, we're going to be the people of God in this new place. We're going to represent God to the whole world. Isaiah chapter 49 says it this way. Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation shall reach the ends of the earth. He says, you will see the salvation of God through this nation. And they said, yes, we want to be the people of God. But not too much time goes by, and you may be familiar with the story. It's in Exodus 32 where Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, and he's gone for a long time. He's gone for 40 days, like a long time, like over a month. And as he's there with God, Aaron and the people start getting a little disgruntled. They're like, where's Moses? What's the next play? What are we going to do next? It's been forever. It's been like a month. I don't know. Maybe God's abandoned all of us. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to make a new God. And so they took all their gold earrings, they took all their gold, and they threw it all together, they melted it all down, and they made a golden calf. And they started worshiping the golden calf. Bummer. Moses comes down with his Ten Commandments. God says, you've got to go check out what those people are doing. He looks at them, he throws the commandments. Mistake, Moses got to fix that later on. And he walks over to the people and says, what are you doing? And, and his, his brother, Aaron, goes, man, I, I don't know what happened, Moses, like, the people, I mean, they're insane. And I just took all that gold, I threw it into the fire, and out came the golden calf. Don't blame me. It was either the people or the fire. I was fine. And Moses says, okay, we've got to fix this. Let's start again. And God says, I, I could start again with you. And Moses says, no, 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 like, let's use these people. Let's repent. Let's bring them back. And he gives them the law of God. Will you follow the law of God? Will you be my people that, that follow me with your whole heart? But the people over and over again rebel against the purposes of God. And it gets so bad all the way to this moment in Judges, in the book of Judges where you see the people over and over again refusing to obey the purposes of God. And in the book of Judges, you see it get really bad when it says this. At the the last chapter, the last verse of the book of Judges, it says, Judges 17, 6, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges 17, 6, Every person says, You know what's the right way? My way. 
You know what's right for me? It's going to be right for me, and I'm going to live life how I want to live life. I'm going to do what I want to do. And ultimately, the people refused to follow the word of God and chose to live life on their own terms. And it got really, really dark in the book of Judges. There was no king to lead them. And so God sent them a king, a great king in King David. And it's beautiful. It says that, that David was, was, was the runt of his family. I mean, he was, he was the one watching the sheep while the brothers were at war. He was literally the runt of the family. And, and Samuel came to anoint a new king. He was the prophet coming to anoint the king God. And he comes there and he sees all of David's brothers. And they're, they're strong and powerful. They look like impressive new leaders, kingly men. And then God says to Samuel, don't look at the height of his stature or his appearance. For I've rejected him. Because God doesn't look at the face, the exterior. He looks at the heart. He says, I have my man oft, off watching sheep. And he goes through each brother. None of the brothers are chosen. But he picks David, a man after God's own heart. And he, he promises David this in 2 Samuel 7. He says, David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father's I will rise up your offspring after you who shall become king in your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish his throne of his kingdom forever. He says, David, I'm from you. I'm going to bring a king that will save the world. But the problem you see in the life of David is, is this. There's some major sin moments. One of them is with Bathsheba. Huge mistake where he He has a woman killed, or has a husband killed, so he can be with the wife and cover up his tracks. But it doesn't just stop there. From from David, you have a king named Solomon. And if you look at the life of Solomon, read the book of Ecclesiastes. and, And he was a man that tested himself with pleasure and wealth. He was wealthy and powerful, the most wealthy king of the nation of Israel. And he did exactly what God told him not to do, which is to multiply horses and multiply wives. He had over 700 wives, several hundred concubines. He, he was a very dark individual that did not live to the purposes of God. And he had two sons that ended up split, splitting the kingdom to a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The north, there was no good kings that led in the north. In the south, there were a few good kings, but none of them really were fulfilling the purposes of God. And it gets so bad that God sends other nations to take them into captivity. They go to Babylonian captivity for a number of years. And they are never really fulfilling the purposes that God laid out for them. In fact, uh, the prophet Isaiah says this of the people. They've continually and completely abandoned my purposes. Isaiah 44, 14 says this. A person cuts down a cedar and he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rains nourish it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. And he takes part of it and warms himself from that tree. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. So with part of the tree, he he uses it for fuel to cook food. With the other part of this tree, he makes himself a god and bows down to worship it. Several years ago, I was listening to um, Shane Bernard, who's a worship leader, to talk about leading worship, and he says he read this passage from Isaiah. He says, 
that silly person. Who would take a tree, use part of it to warm himself, and part of it to be his God? And he looks over his guitar. His guitar that had given him identity. His guitar that had given him purpose. His guitar that he used to lead people into the presence of God. And he looks over at his guitar and he says, Oh my Lord, I've done the same thing. I've used a created thing to give me what only God is supposed to give me. A purpose in life. A direction in life. And so all the people of Israel were continuing to run from the purposes of God. Even in captivity, they're still worshiping false gods. And God says, okay, I'm going to send another person. And when the fullness of time came, God sent forth a man, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those under the law. He put into history the person of Jesus Christ. And this is what's so significant about the person of Jesus Christ. Not only was, see the problem all along was this, is that you had broken people, a broken person that had broken people that led further to a broken world. But what you have in Jesus is you have a perfect person. Right? You have a perfect person. And in Jesus, he is perfecting people. To reach the world with his glory. But it's bigger than that. It's bigger than just being the perfect person. He's actually the fulfillment of every promise that God had. In creation, he is the second Adam. He is the better Adam, born under the law. He is the second Adam, but also this. He is the seed of promise. He's the seed that is promised to to fulfill the promises of God in the world. Galatians 4 says that that there is a seed of promise through. Jesus says of himself, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus was pre-existent always throughout history. He is ultimately the one that will save us. He was a better sacrifice. Not only that, he is the real seed of Abraham. It was not promised to Abraham's seed, meaning many, but, but Paul tells us to seed, meaning one. There was one that would come in the likeness of man, in the line of Abraham, that would fulfill all the promises of God. And in an amazing moment, Abraham did get a son, Isaac. And he brought them all the way up to the Mount Moriah. And God says, I want you to sacrifice your son to me. And at that moment when when Moses or when Abraham was getting ready to kill his own son, God stopped him. But on that same mountain, several hundred years later, God didn't stop the knife. He sacrificed his son for the, the sake of all of us, to free us from our sins, to be the, the son of the seed that would save us. But not only that, Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the better Moses. He's building a better house. He is also a better king, a better David. See, David was a man after God's own heart. But the problem with David is he couldn't change the human heart. See, Jesus alone dies in our place for our sins. But he also is the one that that gives us a new heart, a new life to love God and love people. He literally changes the human heart. Jesus is literally the center of history. We number our days based on the life that this man lived. But he's also the center of the story. He's the central figure that God has been moving all the way through history to come to this point. And that's where we find ourselves. 
John 8 says this, before Abraham was, I am. Galatians 3, the promises to Abraham are to his offspring. He's referring to Christ. He is the better Moses, as I had said, and he is the king that is coming. Matthew 1. But bigger than that, where do you find yourself in this story? What is your purpose in the grand story that God is weaving? First Peter says this, that you are the people of God. We were once not a people. Living our own life, choosing our own things, we were, we were once not a people, but now we're the people of God. You are a holy race, a chosen nation, a people for God's own possession, Peter says, so that you might declare his excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God literally is saving a people, and this is your point in the story. But where's the story end? Where's it going? There's a great moment of eternity when Jesus is going to come again. He's going to come back to earth and rule and reign and usher in a beautiful eternity. See, no other story promises a a better ending to the end of it like the storyline of the Bible. Revelation 7 pictures it this way. It's not for a particular people. It's for everyone. Revelation 7 says this, John in his vision, After I looked, behold, a great multitude that cannot be numbered from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. What are the white robes? It's those people that are forgiven of all of their sins with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and the Lamb. In Revelation 21, he says where this all is going to end. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away. And I saw the holy city of New Jerusalem coming down as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You got tears in your eyes? They're going to be wiped away. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. All the former things are passed away. In the new eternity that Jesus is bringing, he's bringing a people from every tribe and tongue and nation that will worship God, live in eternal bliss with God, and there will be no more crying or tears or pain. Everything is wiped away. That is the big story that God is weaving through history. That is the story that you're a part of. And where do we fit? What is our purpose? We are people that have been saved by the grace of God, that are here to share the wisdom and the love of God to the world. Behind these signs, there's other signs. And they're here for the first three weeks. And and the purpose of those signs is this. They are all of the unreached people groups, which means this, that they either do not have a Bible in their language or a believer in this particular people group. They're not all divided by language. They're divided by people group that people studying this have seen. 
And Jesus says the gospel will be declared at the ends of the earth and then the end will come. So where do we fit in this grand story? There are people that do not know the love of Jesus Christ. And it is our responsibility to get the gospel to them. So how can you play a part? Well, we have a couple of of options for you. First is this. Um, We have a couple of our our fellows here. Um, They're wearing sweet shirts. Come on, come on up so they can see them. Come on up. Woohoo! McLean and Miranda. And they are going. Where are they going, you would be asking yourself? Where are you going? I'm going to North Africa. North Africa? I'm going to Greece. Going to Greece. They are helping lead our trips to reach more people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are other people wearing I am going shirts. If you want to know how you can be a part, join our summer missions trips. That is one opportunity that you can jump into to help move the gospel further. Thank you guys so much. I got one other option for you. We have folks here, um, part of our mobilization team, that literally mobilize people to go to the nations. They're going to be outside. Um, one's going to be guy Philip and um, and Sarah. They literally help mobilize people to reach the world with the glory of God, to move this story that God is weaving through history to find our part and to help it. And next week we're going to talk about it. There are three ways to participate: you pray, you give, or you go. We have a huge opportunity to pray for the people that, that God still needs to reach. We give. We give financially. We give our time. We give our energy. And for some of us, we go. That means we may literally give our lives for the mission of God to get the gospel to more places. I don't know your part, but I do know God's big story. And I do know that we are here to declare the excellencies of God to the world that needs him. It is the greatest story ever told, and you can play a vital part. We pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for your grand story that you're weaving through history. I thank you that you have not left us in our sin, but you have, you have saved us out of our sin. And Lord, this isn't a a random decision that you had at some point in history. This was actually your goal in all of history. To be able to send your son into the world to save us from our sins and to give us new life. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to see our part. Help us to see our place in your story. So Lord, I lift up these students to you. Help us to find our part in the story. Know our place that we might declare your glory to the ends of the earth. It's in your name we pray. Amen.